Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape and murder of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's January 1988 in Brighton, England. A group of locals marches down the city streets toward the police station. As they pass through beachside neighborhoods, they collect signatures on a petition. Their goal is to convince authorities to reopen the investigation into the murders of two nine-year-old girls, Karen Hathaway and Nicola Fellows. For Karen and Nicola's families, the community coming together to support them should be a welcome sight. But instead, they're sick to their stomachs because marching alongside them is the man they think is responsible. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others well, will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're going to the seaside town of Brighton, England. In 1986, a double homicide shocked the community and left two families broken. Decades later, authorities fought for justice using two unlikely clues, a sweater and a few pieces of tape. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. We all know the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel. Two children wander into the woods and are taken in by an evil witch. She plans to eat them until they push her into the oven and narrowly escape with their lives. This is just one version of a common folktale. In the UK, 
There's a similar story known as the Babes in the Wood. Two kids go into the forest and meet an evil being. Exactly who depends on which version you're telling, but one thing is always the same. In this tale, the children don't make it out alive. Stories like this have staying power. They're legends that have been told and retold for centuries because they highlight some of our most primal fears. Getting lost, running into a monster, or worse, the same thing happening to our children. It's a nightmare of mythic proportions, and sadly for some, it's a lived reality. This is the story of the real-life Babes in the Wood. It's October 9th, 1986, in the seaside town of Brighton, England. A nine-year-old girl named Nicola Fellows skips through the streets of Molescombe Estate. Molescombe is a large, government-owned housing development about two miles north of the beach. It has around 9,000 occupants who are packed into small apartments, all sharing walls with one another. It's not an ideal living situation, but for the kids at Molescombe, there are plenty of upsides. Children roam the grounds freely and play in the streets. With so many neighbors, most parents trust that wherever their kids are, someone's got an eye on them. That's the case for Nicola Fellows. She skips along the sidewalk alone, heading home after choir practice. When she gets there, she changes out of her school clothes and is about to go outside to find her friends. When there's a knock at the door, Nicola answers. When she sees who it is, her mood immediately sours. See, Nicola's a happy-go-lucky kid. She's well-liked and makes friends easily. But if someone bothers her, she is not afraid to let them know. That's why she doesn't even try to hide her disgust at the couple standing in front of her. It's 20-year-old Russell Bishop and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Marion Stevenson. Nicola might only be nine, but she knows the gossip around town. Bishop isn't just dating a teenager, he's also openly cheating on his common-law wife. If Bishop notices Nicola's mood, he doesn't mention it. He just says he's looking for a man named Dougie Judd, who's renting a room from her family. Nicola tells him Dougie isn't there and slams the door on his face. As dramatic as the scene is, it quickly fades from Nicola's mind. An hour later, she's outside playing with her friends, including nine-year-old Karen Hathaway. Like Nicola, Karen's a happy kid. She's always smiling, energetic, and looking for adventure. But she's also a rule follower. She likes being home in time for supper. Karen and Nicola are best friends, so it's not surprising when they run off from the rest of the group. They head to the Wild Park Nature Reserve, a partially wooded recreational area right on the border of Molescombe Estate. Later on, another local sees them getting fries at a nearby fish and chip shop. Around 6.30 p.m., they pass a friend while on their way back to the park. The other girl tells them they should check in at home. It's getting late. The girls ignore her. They figure they'll be home soon enough. Meanwhile, Karen's mother, Michelle Hadaway, finishes cooking dinner. 
She's not prone to worrying, but it's odd that Karen isn't back yet. A few minutes later, Karen's dad, Lee, calls home, and Michelle shares her worries. Karen's absence seems strange to him, too. He's a truck driver and away on a job at the moment, but he promises to call back in half an hour. Hopefully, Karen will be home by then. Michelle hangs up, but she can't sit still. She wonders if Karen has run off with Nicola. They're usually attached at the hip, so it makes sense they'd be together. Michelle rushes a few doors down and knocks on Nicola's family's door. Her mom, Susan Fellows, answers, but she tells Michelle she hasn't seen the girls either. As the sky darkens, the two mothers search the massive estate. They can't find their daughters anywhere. Eventually, they head home, hoping the girls are already back, and this is all a big misunderstanding. But both mothers return to empty houses. Michelle stares at her kitchen phone. The last thing she wants to do is get the police involved, but her little girl is missing. Around 8.30 p.m., she dials 999. The police descend on the estate. Within a few hours, hundreds of officers are in the streets, likely more than the area has ever seen. They break into three groups. Some interview witnesses, others search the estate, and the rest comb through the surrounding areas. A helicopter circles above while tracking dogs survey the woods. Karen and Nicola's parents are comforted by the effort going into the search, and how quickly the authorities sprung to their aid. But all that manpower still doesn't mean it'll be easy to find the girls. Not only is the estate huge, it's also surrounded by dense, thick undergrowth. If the girls are in there, it'll be extremely difficult to locate them. Karen's mother, Michelle Hadaway, knows there's no time to waste. While authorities work, she heads down to the beach it's Karen's favorite place, so Michelle wonders if she wandered down to the seaside. Michelle treks across the marina. She checks under every upturned fishing boat, explores every alcove, but Karen's nowhere to be found. As evening turns into the dead of night, the official search subsides. At 2 a.m., the police superintendent calls for a pause. It's too dark to get anything done. When the sun rises, authorities get back to work. But no matter how hard they look and how many people they talk to, they struggle to come up with anything. After hours of searching, a police constable named Paul Smith breaks off from the group for a much-needed smoke break. He finds a secluded place away from his superior's line of sight and lights a cigarette. Just as he does, a voice calls out behind him. What are you doing? Smith jumps. He thinks he's caught. But it's not the superintendent. It's a local man. Russell Bishop. The same guy who came to Nicola's door the day before. Bishop tells Smith he's been helping out with the search. He and his dog have been scouring the fields. But he's stopping now. Smith asks why he'd give up. And Bishop says... If I found them and they were dead, I'd get nicked, wouldn't I? 
Smith doesn't know how to respond. It's such a strange statement. A suspicious one. He's about to ask follow-up questions, but then shouts erupt from nearby. Someone's found the girls. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Russell Bishop and Police Constable Paul Smith take off towards the woods, just on the edge of Brighton's Moleskoome estate. But Smith's a big guy. He can't keep up with Bishop, who speeds ahead. By the time Smith reaches the scene, he's panting, and he loses his breath entirely at the sight. You can just make out the two girls hidden in a small clearing, with overgrown shrubbery covering them. It looks like Nicola Fellows is on her back, with Karen Hathaway face down, partially on top of her. But it's hard to tell exactly what's happened to them. Two local men who volunteered to help search found the girls. Now they're standing nearby, wide-eyed. Constable Smith tries to ask them a few questions, but they're in shock. Their answers are barely coherent. That's when Smith turns to Russell Bishop, who's already been on the scene for a minute. Bishop calmly tells the constable the girls are dead. He already checked their pulses himself, but apparently in the commotion, nobody else saw him do it. Bishop's statement once again strikes Smith as odd, and in any case, he's not going to listen to a civilian when it comes to something like this. He calls for backup. Authorities descend on the crime scene and soon confirm the worst. The girls are both dead. Forensic analysis reveals they were sexually assaulted before their killer strangled them. Immediately, the police's number one goal is to find out who did this. But it's the 1980s and, as I'm sure you know, forensic DNA analysis is still being developed. Officers know their current technology can only take them so far, but they also know new advancements are happening every day. So they collect everything they can. They even use sticky tape to lift DNA samples off the girl's skin and clothing. Then they store that tape in acetone to lock in the evidence. And the idea is to save the DNA until genetic analysis is advanced enough to test it properly. The problem is, no one knows when those advancements will happen. For now, the tape is pretty much useless. So, authorities turn their attention towards interviewing locals 
hoping to determine who Karen and Nicola were with before they disappeared. Throughout the investigation, police interview approximately 2,000 people and take 700 statements. They also receive around 3,000 phone calls with potential tips. It's a lot to sift through, and all the buzz makes people nervous, probably because a crime like this feeds into some of our most basic fears of children being stolen away and killed by an unknown attacker. The media even connects the double homicide to something out of a folktale. News outlets call the crime the Babes in the Wood murders. It's a callback to that fairy tale, the one where two young children wander into the woods and never make it out alive. In most versions of the story, the kids are either murdered or left to die by someone they know personally. The police believe that's the case here. Both Karen and Nicola's parents insist their girls wouldn't have wandered off with a stranger. They think the girls knew their killer and trusted him enough to follow him into the woods. Following this hunch, the police narrow in on one man, someone who's been involved nearly every step of the way, someone whose strange behavior and statements have authorities on high alert. Six days after Karen and Nicola's bodies are found, police interview Russell Bishop. And it doesn't look good for him. He admits he saw both girls by the Wild Park Nature Reserve that night, making him one of the last people to see them alive. He tries to explain away his strange comments throughout the search process, but his story keeps changing. At first, he says he knew the girls were dead because he checked their necks for a pulse. Then he backpedals and says he never touched them. He claims he actually knew they were dead because he saw blood on their mouths. It all strikes the police as suspicious, but they need something tangible to tie Bishop to the crime. Luckily for them, there's a piece of evidence that could do just that. Right before the girls' bodies were discovered, a local man found a sweatshirt at a train station near Moleskum Estate. It didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary, but then he noticed a stain on the fabric. It looked a lot like blood. Given that the area was overrun with search parties at the time, the man thought it was worth bringing to the police. He picked it up, trying to touch it as little as possible, and gave it to the nearest officer. The cops bagged the sweatshirt as evidence, but when the girls were found mere hours later and the police realized this was a murder case, well, there was a lot of shock and commotion. In the chaos, the sweatshirt got sent back to the Brighton police station, where it sat unnoticed for days. That is, until the police zero in on Russell Bishop and realize this could be a crucial clue. A crime scene officer takes the sweatshirt to a forensic lab and runs a field test for blood. It comes back with a weak positive result, meaning the stain could be blood, but they're not 100% sure. The officer thinks it's promising enough to report the findings to his boss. From there, the sweatshirt goes to a more extensive lab review. 
This reveals there are fibers and ivy spores from the crime scene on the sweatshirt, which indicates whoever wore it was at the crime scene. To police, that means this sweatshirt could belong to the killer. But there's another finding that's more confusing. The stains aren't actually blood. They're paint, a very specific type and shade of red. Detectives aren't quite sure what to make of this, but they still have their eyes on Russell Bishop. They're interviewing his friends and family, learning more about his habits. One investigator learns Bishop often went to his friend's garage where they worked on their cars together. The officer heads down to the building to check it out. When he gets to the garage, he's stunned. Because right there on the wall is the identical shade of red paint from the sweatshirt. It's almost too good to be true. Police head to Bishop's house to confront him. They knock on the door and his partner, Jenny Johnson, answers. She looks at the cops sees the sweatshirt, and happily exclaims that they have Russell's shirt as if she'd been looking for it. The officers glance at each other and try not to smile. This investigation is almost too easy. They turn back to Jenny and ask her to sign a statement saying the sweatshirt is Bishop's. She does. That sweatshirt is the only piece of physical evidence authorities have so far. And Jenny's sworn statement definitively links it to Russell Bishop. With her signature, she essentially confirms that Bishop is guilty of murder. With all this, the police feel more than confident they have their guy. Three weeks after Karen and Nicola's bodies are found, they arrest Bishop on suspicion of murder. They bring Bishop to the station where they conduct another interrogation. Once again, Bishop changes his story multiple times. At first, he reverts back to his earlier claim that he checked the girls' pulses by putting his fingers on their necks. He even signs a statement swearing to that fact. But later, he does a complete 180. He denies ever touching the girls and claims he hadn't realized what he was signing in his earlier statement. Well, that's not the only thing he insists is a mistake. He refuses to admit the sweatshirt is his, even after seeing Jenny's sworn statement. He tells the officers she must have been confused. But despite Bishop's claims of innocence, he can't produce a concrete alibi. He says he was at his house doing laundry, but no one can back him up. Jenny wasn't home, and no one else popped in to see him. After three days, the police are satisfied they've gotten everything they can out of Bishop. They release him on bail and give him a court date for December. In keeping with the British court system at the time, that's when he'll be officially charged with two counts of murder and remanded into custody. For Bishop, that means it's not too late to wiggle out of this. He marches over to the fellow's house and knocks on the front door. Nicola's father, Barry, answers, and Bishop doesn't ask him how he is. He doesn't say sorry. Instead, he launches right into saying he didn't kill the girls. Barry 
doesn't believe it. All the statement does is make him even more confident that Bishop's the killer. He tells Bishop to leave. Now. He doesn't want to see him again until they're in court. It takes a year for Bishop to stand trial, but the day finally comes in December of 1987. Prosecutors are confident they have this in the bag. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence tying Bishop to the murders. He knows both victims, was one of the last people to see them alive, and made multiple suspicious comments during the search. He can't keep his story straight and can't provide a solid alibi, and the deal is sealed by Jenny Johnson's statement about the sweatshirt, which clearly ties Bishop to the crime scene. But then, during the trial, Jenny changes her story. She claims the police bullied her into making her original statement, and she actually doesn't recognize the sweatshirt at all. The prosecution is stunned. They thought they had the case in the bag. They're sure Russell Bishop is guilty, but without Jenny's testimony, they can't link him to the sweatshirt. It's all just a theory. What was once a sure win is now a toss-up. The jury returns their verdict two hours later. They find Russell Bishop not guilty. Karen and Nicholas' families are devastated. No matter what the jury says, everyone on the prosecution side believes Russell Bishop is a murderer. But there's nothing they can do about it. Like the United States, the UK has double jeopardy laws that prevent him from being retried for these same crimes. Even if detectives uncover new information, it's too late. Bishop's free. If authorities want to solve this murder, they'll have to look for other suspects. Only they don't have any leads. But that's not the case for long. The Sunday after the trial... Bishop's girlfriend, Marion Stevenson, makes a stunning accusation. She tells the newspapers that Nicholas' father, Barry Fellows, is the one responsible for the murders. Her reason, if true, is horrendous. She claims she walked in on Barry watching a video of Nicola being raped by Dougie Judd, the family's lodger. Barry vehemently denies this. He never laid a hand on his daughter. And the idea of a video recording of such a heinous act absolutely breaks his heart. He can't believe Marion would accuse him of something so atrocious. Still, the police have no choice but to investigate the new claims. As it turns out, Barry has a record. He did time for robbery a few years back. Barry's family says he came back from prison a changed man. Not a perfect one. He sometimes had a temper and a tendency to act before thinking. But he loved his kids and tried to be a good father. So the idea that he was responsible for Nicola's death is ridiculous. Thankfully, the detective's investigation is swift and definitive. Barry did not kill his daughter and her friend and there's zero evidence of such a video ever existing. With Barry cleared by the authorities and Bishop found innocent by a jury, 
the police are once again at a dead end. They have no other leads, and the case is growing colder by the day. Soon, it'll be a fixture in the archives. But not if the Hathaways and Fellows have anything to say about it. In January 1988, they organize a community march, hoping to convince the police to reopen the investigation. Surprisingly, Russell Bishop speaks up in support of the protest. He even plans to take part in it. He believes the community will always think he's guilty until the real killer is found. He wants to clear his name once and for all. As you might imagine, the families aren't thrilled with Bishop's participation. As far as they're concerned, he's still the prime suspect. But they can't force Bishop to stay home, and they can't back down from this demonstration. When the day comes, Barry and Susan Fellows, along with Karen and Lee Hathaway, march through Brighton with the man they think killed their little girls. But even this show of solidarity isn't enough. As much as the police might want to reopen the investigation, they have no grounds to do it. There's no new evidence, no leads, nothing. The case stays cold for two more years until another little girl is taken. On February 4th, 1990, a couple picnics at a lookout in Devil's Dyke, about six miles north of Brighton. Despite the chilly winter weather, the remote land is peaceful and beautiful. The couple is bundled up as they sip their warm tea. Suddenly, they hear a sound behind them. When they turn, they're so shocked they nearly spit out their drinks. Stumbling out of the trees is seven-year-old Claire Perkins. She's naked and trembling from the cold. Her hair is matted with blood and dirt. Her arms are scraped and bruised from making her way through the woods, and her eyes are red from sobbing. The couple scrambles to help. They give her a sweater and a coat and ask what happened. Through her sobs, she tells them a man kidnapped and assaulted her. The couple takes Claire to the golf club at the bottom of the hill and calls the authorities. Police Constable Debbie Wood arrives soon. She's with the Special Inquiry Unit, so she's dealt with cases like this before. She knows how to interview children, even after they've been through something this traumatic. But even Debbie's impressed by Claire's resolve. With remarkable clarity, the seven-year-old tells Debbie she was rollerblading when someone snatched her off the street and put her into the trunk of a red car. Claire did her best to escape. She kicked off her rollerblades so if there was a chance to make a run for it, she could. She found a hammer in the trunk and used it to try to bash the trunk open from the inside. She only stopped when the man shouted from the front. If she wasn't quiet, he'd kill her. Eventually, her attacker pulled over and opened the trunk. That's when Claire first got a good look at his face. She describes the man as younger than her dad and with a mustache. She recalls him dragging her into the backseat of the car. He took her clothes off 
pulling her shirt off over her head. He sexually assaulted her, then strangled her. That's when she passed out. The next thing she knew, she woke up alone in the bushes in Devil's Dyke. For Debbie, it's clear the killer thought Claire was dead when he left her in the woods. But she wasn't. And now, she's determined to help the police catch the man who attacked her. Already, the authorities are searching for evidence to bolster her account. And sure enough, with each step, they find more proof that her story is accurate. They discover her clothes discarded in another random area of Devil's Dyke, bundled together and tucked within each other, just like you'd expect if they were pulled off her head. They also find tire tracks that are oddly unique. Forensic experts determine three of the tires are manufactured by the brand Tiger, while one is from Uniroyal. So they know they're looking for a red car with a specific tire combination. That's when one officer pipes up with an interesting thought. In the latest intelligence logs, someone noted that Russell Bishop was seen driving a red car. There's a moment of stunned silence, and then an explosion of activity. Bishop matches Claire's description of her attacker. He's in his 20s with a mustache, and police still believe he's responsible for the Babes in the Wood murders, even though they can no longer investigate him for it. But the police remember how things went last time. This go-around, they're determined not to let him get away with it. The first thing the police superintendent does is ban any officers who worked on Karen and Nicholas' case from working on Claire's. He doesn't want any insinuation that the police might be trying to settle old vendettas. Then they build their case. They find eyewitnesses who saw a red car speeding away from the area where Claire was kidnapped. They search Bishop's car and find dents in the trunk that could be from a little girl trying to hammer her way out. They check the tires, and they match the unique tracks left near the crime scene. But officers still need more. They need undeniable proof, and they think they know how to get it. Four years have passed since Karen and Nicola's murders, and a lot has changed since then. Forensic DNA analysis is still very new, but it's more accessible than before. In what will become one of the first uses of this technology in Brighton, authorities test Claire's discarded clothes for DNA. And it's a match for none other than Russell Bishop. With that, police arrest Bishop on suspicion of yet another terrifying crime. While he's in custody awaiting trial, authorities ask seven-year-old Claire to take part in a suspect lineup. They bring her to a one-way mirrored window. Ten men sit on the other side. Claire focuses hard. When her eyes land on number nine, she feels it in the pit of her stomach. She points. That's the man who attacked her. The police try to keep a neutral face. They thank Claire for her help and send her on her way. But inside, they're cheering because Claire just positively identified Bishop.
When Bishop stands trial for the kidnapping, assault, and attempted murder of Claire Perkins, the jury comes back with a swift verdict. Guilty. The judge sentences Russell Bishop to life in prison. He won't be eligible for parole for at least 14 years. Still, as nice as it is for Claire to get justice, it's a hard day to celebrate. As Graham Bartlett points out in his book, Babes in the Wood, there are still two families in Brighton who haven't received closure. The Hathaways and the Fellows still think Bishop killed Karen and Nicola. They want him to admit it and pay for what he's done. Sadly, in 1990, there's nothing they can do. As the years turn into decades, the Hathaways and Fellows worry they may never get the confirmation they need. But that all changes in 2005, when Britain's double jeopardy laws are updated. Before, a person couldn't be tried for the same crime twice. Now they can, but prosecutors need to have evidence that's new, compelling, and reliable. And they only get one shot at retrying someone. If they lose again, it's over. Because the stakes are so high and the requirements so steep, it takes almost another decade before authorities consider reopening the case. At this point, it's 2013, 27 years since Karen and Nicola's murders. But the detective superintendent of Brighton Police, Jeff Riley, thinks they've finally got enough to try again. With new DNA technology, they might finally be able to link Bishop to that mysterious sweatshirt. Forensic scientist Roy Green runs new tests on the clothing, and he finds exactly what he anticipated. Russell Bishop's DNA. By all accounts, that should mean he's the killer. But the celebration is quickly cut short. A scientific advisor can't say with absolute certainty that the sweatshirt wasn't contaminated during the initial investigation. It's technically possible Bishop touched it after the crime was committed. So the piece de resistance that Riley and Green thought they had is once again a moot point. Thankfully, it's not the only piece of DNA evidence. Remember, back in 1986, crime scene technicians took tape samples off of Karen and Nicola's arms? Those tapings have been preserved for decades, just waiting for the right moment to be utilized. Now, scientists test them using their new technology. It's a make-or-break moment. If the tape comes back inconclusive, the double jeopardy case might come to another heartbreaking halt. But it doesn't. Those little pieces of tape, collected almost 30 years earlier in the hopes they might one day come in handy, are cause for celebration, because they are covered in Russell Bishop's DNA. That's only possible if he touched the girls, and all those years ago, he swore he didn't. At least, that's what he changed his story to. The police just need to catch him in his lie one more time. In 2016, exactly three decades after the murders, Bishop is still serving time for the attempted murder of Claire Perkins. 
Brighton police interrogate him in prison. He clams up and refuses to engage. But he does make one comment. He tells investigators he did not touch the girls. Ever. That's all the detectives wanted to hear. They send him back to his cell to await what they hope is his final trial. Bishop stews behind bars until he's summoned to the Old Bailey Courthouse in 2018. Once again, everyone packs into the courtroom. But this trial is very different from the first one. Now the police have enough evidence to prove, without a doubt, that Bishop is responsible. And the jury doesn't take long to deliberate. Within just a few hours, they reverse the previous decision. They find Bishop guilty of the murders of Karen Hathaway and Nicola Fellows. The judge follows up by giving 52-year-old Russell Bishop two life sentences, one for each girl he murdered. If there was any doubt about Bishop's guilt, it's all put to rest three years later. His ex-partner Jenny Johnson comes forward to admit she lied about the sweatshirt. It was Bishop's, and she knew it the whole time. But Bishop had pressured her into lying to protect him. It's a sad addendum to an already brutal story. In many ways, Jenny was yet another victim of Bishop's. He used her as a tool to try to cover up his other crimes. Russell Bishop died in prison in 2022, and he left a trail of violence and intimidation against women and girls in his wake. But ultimately, his power was unraveled by the youngest of his victims, seven-year-old Claire Perkins. She exposed Russell Bishop to the world. Without her, police might never have gotten justice for Karen and Nicola. For once, innocence triumphs over evil. At least now, the Hathaways and Fellows have some semblance of closure, and the monster who stalked their community is gone for good. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the murders of Karen Hathaway and Nicola Fellows, Amongst the many sources we used, we found Babes in the Wood by Graham Bartlett and Peter James, and The Babes in the Woods Murders by Paul Cheston, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Alex Burns, Edited by Sarah Batchelor, Karis Allen, and Andrew Kelleher. Fact-checked by Katherine Barner. 
researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy.